Independent. Expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Hello, hello, friends. My name is Joe Armstrong, and thank you ever so much for listening to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information, all blessedly without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. This week on Independence Day, Sean Watkins. Sean Watkins has been a professional musician since he wasn't yet old enough to drive. Along with his talented sister, Sarah, Watkins formed the progressive acoustic trio Nickel Creek after meeting mandolin virtuoso Chris Thiele at a pizza parlor bluegrass jam in North County, San Diego when there were still kids in 1990. The chemistry between the three young musicians was rare and palpable, and it wasn't long before bluegrass stalwart Alison Krauss was producing what would become their third album. After expanding their sound over their next two releases and winning a Grammy for this side, Nickel Creek went on a hiatus for seven years, returning with their acclaimed fifth album, A Dotted Line, in 2014. Never one to let dust settle, Watkins regularly has multiple projects going at any time, with the ongoing decade-plus residency at Los Angeles' Largo, billed as the Watkins Family Hour, as the center of a musical universe that has included John Bryan, Fiona Apple, Ben Montench, Greg Leese, Don Heffington, Glenn Phillips of Toad the Wet Sprocket, and other musical luminaries. Beyond his virtuosic guitar playing and a trademark tenor voice, a hallmark of Watkins' career has been his maturation as a songwriter. Although his early releases allowed him to experiment and expand his sonic palette beyond the acoustic setting of Nickel Creek, Watkins has evolved into an accomplished songwriter with his own unique voice. His brand new album, What to Fear, finds Watkins turning his sharp eye and emotional compass to bittersweet ruminations of failed relationships, narrators who may or may not have the best intentions, and incisive indictments of our modern society's penchant for false goals, misguided gods, and an unwitting desire to seek solace in the comfort of fear. Through it all, Watkins' impeccable guitar playing and support from his infinitely talented friends make What to Fear a satisfying listen, and, like all his musical endeavors, yet another testament to the virtue of collaboration. Welcome to Independence Day, Sean Watkins. Hey, Sean. How you doing? I'm great, man. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. I appreciate this so, so happy, very much. So happy to be here. I am eager to talk to you. We've got so much to talk about in your career because you've done so many things. Like you had early success with a little band called Nickel Creek. You've got a set of solo albums on your own. You've got Fiction Family. You've got Works Progress Administration. You've got the Watkins Family Hour. So it's like we could, this show could be 10 hours long, but I promise you <laughs> and our listeners, it won't be 10 hours long. So thank you. Yeah. Uh, San Diego-based musician got your start with Nickel Creek. Uh, you were very, very young when you got started in, in music. So I, the, it's maybe an obvious place to start, but when someone starts music so young, uh, was it a musical household? I mean, were there were people playing together in your household? Um, <clears throat> my parents listened to... Uh, they listened to music. I remember hearing... Uh, you know, classical music early on and um, some folk music and they had like, you know, a couple Bob Dylan records in the band and, um, uh, but they weren't like music heads, you know, they just, I think it was normal, you know, came from the 60s era and they were, they were, you know, they had an eclectic, you know, um, musical palette. Um, but really, um, you know, when I was about, I guess I was about seven or so, they, they, um, they want us to learn uh, an instrument, you know, take musical lessons just for overall well-roundedness. To make you a better human being. Yeah, just just like, you know, they'd taken it out of school systems and music classes and they felt like, you know, you should learn some music just for the heck of it. And um, so they asked, you know, me and Sarah, my sister, choose an instrument. And, and I was like, I don't know. I just, I mean, 
I was seven, and I was like, maybe piano, I guess. <laughs> so um, started taking piano lessons, and um, you know, it was classical and reading music and everything. And it was uh, this woman named um, Faith Moore, and her son, who was like early twenties, kind of still living at home, uh, was a bluegrass, and still is bluegrass musician, played mandolin and guitar, and um, I'd see him around the house, and you know, when I'd, I'd go to her house for lessons, and I'd met him, and. And um, and she told me my piano teacher was like you know, you know he, he has a, um, a weekly gig at this pizza place called that pizza place in Carlsbad. I told my parents and you know no this is San Diego. It. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's yeah. we're just to localize everybody. Then. Yeah, you're from the San Diego area, like North County, North San Diego County, San Diego. Area. It's it's like kind of inland. I grew up in Vista. It's a small little kind of agricultural agricultural town. But Carlsbad is the neighboring town. It's on the beach. Um, and there's this pizza place, you know, and she said, you know, you should come, come down, just kind of inviting people. So we started going and it was every Saturday night. It's just really, really great. You know, a little bluegrass band kind of had this core unit of three people and then they'd have a, you know, one or two extra people. Sometimes um, musicians from LA would come down, Byron Burline and, um, you know, I can't remember any others, but, uh, and they would play, uh, you know, some traditional bluegrass songs, but a lot of covers. You know, they do like a Beach Boys song or Johnny yeah. Cash, or Gordon Lightfoot. And um, it was this whole same crowd. Every, you know, it's probably like, place probably held like, you know, 150 people or something like that. And uh, and so that's where I discovered bluegrass. And my parents, too. My parents didn't really know about bluegrass. And so it seems like such a strange thing to be in a place. I mean, granted, there's a lot of music on the West Coast, especially LA. Uh, it's a strange place for like this bluegrass thing to bubble up. There must have been very like, strange. Somebody did somebody come from somewhere else and like bring it in? Or well, yeah. I mean, there's little pockets of bluegrass everywhere. And um, back then, you know, before the internet, it was very it was a very tight knit community because you know people that liked bluegrass really wanted to know other people that liked bluegrass. You know, yeah. and there was like little newsletters that would go out and things like that. And it was a, the same crowd would show up for any little event all over San Diego, you know. And it makes it kind of an exclusive thing. Like, then you're part of this club. Yeah. Like, who knows if it's a cool club, but it's a club just the same. And yeah. if anything becomes exclusive, other people are then curious about it. So, yeah. go on, I'm sorry. Anytime there's people that are passionate about something that's not mainstream, those yeah. people are going to, you know, it's like nerd culture, you know. They're, yeah. They, they, they stick together. And so that's how, um, that's how it was for me. And um, so I, I discovered... Uh, bluegrass and, 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 you know, this really great free improvisational music and um and started taking lessons <laughs> i i wanted to play that so i started taking mandolin lessons i wanted to play guitar um so then wait so how did you get like railroaded into playing mandolin well so i would you know take these piano lessons and every week i'd see her son was there and john we got to be friends his name is john Moore. ah so he made you play mandolin so, so he could he, play guitar yeah he um i, I wanted to play you know start, after going to you know to see these shows um with my folks i was like i want to do that you know so I would go over and take piano lessons, and then I would take a, a mandolin lesson afterwards from her, her son. And then eventually, I just sort of decided that I really wanted to play. Uh, just I just wanted to do guitar, you know, and and mandolin. So, well, I should say, he I wanted to play guitar, and he he'd become a family friend by then. We were like we would go camping together, my folks and his, him, and um, and he was like, well, you should play, um, you know play mandolin because your your hands are too small for guitar. So ah. learn mandolin first and then you can switch to guitar. Okay. Which is great. So I did that and then a few and um started playing mandolin and it, right after I started playing mandolin was when uh, I met Chris. He his family his dad was a piano tuner and, and we're talking about Chris Thiele. Chris Thiele, who, right. The, yeah. the mandolin 
yeah. virtuoso. Yeah, the best mandolin player in the world by very far. Um, and so he um, he was going to the, these pizza play shows, too, because his dad tuned my piano teacher's pianos. And um, he had started to play mandolin, too. And so he was taking lessons from John Moore. We had the same teacher. And um, so I met Chris. I was a nine, and Chris was five. Oh man! And uh, my sister was five too. And we we were we met at this pizza place, like you know, playing little video. There was like a little arcade on the side uh-huh. of the stage, and he was playing some game. And um, and I was like, hey, I play mandolin too. I think Chris, Chris had just sat in with him. I think they got him up to play a song, and he just he just started and was amazing, you know. Yeah. So. That's kind of when my my love of you know acoustic music and bluegrass and folk started, and I, my you know I, I sort of my piano f- sort of fade. My yeah. piano lessons at one point I just said I need to focus on guitar and I stopped taking okay. piano lessons. So that came from you. That was your decision rather than your folks. Yeah. Just so okay. Yeah, I think they were kind of bummed. I think they were kind of like oh all these years of lessons and you're just gonna stop. But you know, and I can't really play piano. I can't sit down and just like like some people can't just play a song in any key. You know, I okay. can I can record with it i can figure stuff out but i yeah. i don't i've lost that ability but then again i all my training in piano was all classical it was all just reading notes it wasn't like here's how to play a song in right. f sharp and you know here's some cool voicings here's a journey power ballad yeah go. it was never it was never that it was all classical so but the, i think it it helped me develop my ear Okay. Sure. Well, that's the thing. I mean, knowledge, no, no knowledge hurts you, really. I mean, even the knowledge that hurts you initially will probably help you in the long run. Yeah. Exactly. You know, so exactly. it's just, yeah. it's get big ears and learn how to do it. You know, especially yeah. there's that musical language when you start working with other musicians. I remember when I was in high school, I made a conscious effort. You know, I did this for like the rock and roll instruments, like to learn how to play all those instruments, at least to some level. So that in a joking way, so that when I was bossing them around in band rehearsals, like I at least had a leg to stand on. But mm-hmm. and more importantly, so I had a common language with the drummer. So in other yeah. words, you know, my just instead of going, you know, do a little bit of this, but we move your hands around, you know, boogie mm-hmm. boogie and try to do it with your mouth. You could actually say, okay, well, I want you to hit the snare on the end of four, yeah. or I want you to open the hi hat at this particular beat, and mm-hmm. then then you have that language. You can then talk in that yeah. other thing. Um, anyway, and I'm talking. I'm people sorry, they 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 appreciate that so much. Yeah, you know. They really do. We'll meet him halfway at, at a minimum. Mm-hmm. I'm talking with Sean Watkins, uh, Los Angeles-based singer-songwriter these days. You've known him from Nickel Creek. You've known him from playing with Fiction Family. You've known him for playing with Works Progress Administration, uh, the Watkins Family Hour, which is how many years now for Watkins Family Hour? I think Hour? 13. Man. Yeah. That's a really special thing, you guys. We'll, 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 we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to get to a song. You've got a brand new record. I do. Actually, just came out last week, and it's mm-hmm. called What to Fear. Uh, it is your fifth solo record, mm-hmm. uh, and it sounds great, by the way. Thank you. And I love the cover, love the tunes, I uh, love the departure from the other stuff that you do, but it's still part of your musical universe, so very, very cool. Uh, so people should check that out. Go to seanwatkins.com, and in case you're not aware, it's Sean, the Irish spelling, S-E-A-N, Watkins. Yep. And uh, this is the track, uh, it's a title track, I'm, I'm think, right here, Sean? Yep. Okay, this is What to Fear from the album, What to Fear, Sean Watkins on Independence Day. Oh 
think you're safe inside your armored cars We'll turn the volume up We're gonna tell you what to fear Better listen up Cause we're telling you what to fear There's just so much And there's no one in this dark world you can trust Except for us All ye lost, just take our hand We're headed for the promised land
Very, very nice, Sean. Great stuff, man. Thank you. It's great. It's great to hear you in so many different settings. Uh, and that's like the next question I want to ask you is you're, you're involved in so many different projects, and your sister is too, and there's a lot of overlap between the two of you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. And is there a thing with musical identity for you when you go into these different projects? Like, do you, do you stake out the same musical turf in each project? Do you approach each project differently? Because you're known for doing what you do, playing acoustic guitar at a, at a very high level, facile level, flat picking bluegrass style, but with some interesting, more interesting chords mixed in there. Uh, progressive bluegrass is a mm-hmm. term that comes up in your bio. Um, but what is your musical identity? Do you approach it differently in these different groups that you play with, with all these different players? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, you know, with regard to, and I mean, the, the bulk of my, uh, musical experience is, has been being in bands and specifically Nickel Creek growing up. We did that for like 19 years before we took a hiatus. And so you're, Musical identity gets tied up into into a band, right? And at that point, you know, like the reason we um, decided to take a hiatus for a while, um, which was like six and a half years, was because we didn't really know. You know, we'd put out solo records and we'd we'd done other things, but at that point, you know, it's hard to tell where you begin and where you end, and someone else begins right. musically. You know, it, who who am I just on my own? If you separate me from from the band, am I? Do I have any musical worth? You know, like what would I do on my own? So <clears throat> that's what we. That's you know one of the main reasons we we decided to sort of you know to to stop doing it for a while. And at that point, um, uh, you know, I did some stuff with um, John Foreman. We did um, Fiction Family. We made a couple records. And, Glenn Phillips did, did um, from Toward the Wet Sprocket, yeah, just up the coast, Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, he's been a, a huge influence. I've, I love his songwriting, and he's been a really great friend over the years. Um, and so, you know, I think you know, I've always liked being a part of, you know, bands and working with other people. Uh, but then a few years ago, I I just really had this um, kind of a sudden um, inkling and drive to to do a solo record and. And really, um, just be the only one in charge. And so that's when I, I put out all I do is lie. And the solo records I've done before, then um, there's three. They were things I put out. that were sort of reactionary to what was going on in Nickel Creek, and things I could just do on my own. It was like yeah. you know we're doing a lot of acoustic, you know, and you know kind of organic type um, stuff. And I would you know I do a record where I play electric guitar and had synthesizers and stuff. So it wasn't really it wasn't really like me. It was me sort of doing something different, getting your yayas out, so yeah. to speak. And I didn't really I never toured for them. I never we, I just put them out and we sold them at Nickel Creek shows. So uh, my point is that finally I wanted to sort of just do something on my own. Had my just my name on it, play some shows, you know, tour and and. You know, sink or swim. It was it was my my name on the yeah. on the record, um, and so I think you know even just in the last five years, I've kind of really found found my voice. You know, found yeah, what, your artistic what, voice. Not what what I feel comfortable, you know, song writing songs that I feel um, I'm still happy with. You know, a few years down the line, whereas before it was like, you know, put out a record and then a year later you think it sucks. It's got to be um, frightening and liberating at the same time. It is, to it's especially very, to have had something very successful because if you're making a living at it. Um, receiving accolades from like the you know Grammy nominations, uh, touring internationally, yeah. uh, doing it at a very excuse me professional high level, and then to step out on your own, you yeah, know, it's, it's freeing. But at the same time, it's got to be terrifying. Like, yeah, was it like that for you? It's, yeah, a little bit. Um, but I mean, 
Kind of, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't as bad as it as I, th- th- I think it can be with some people. I've done so many different uh, different things, like the Watkins Family Hour, where I'm I you know my sister and I are kind of co-hosting this variety musical variety show. It's a monthly show that we do here in Los Angeles. Don't it's Largo. Largo, yeah. And we both take lead roles in that, varying you know very to varying degrees. And so I'm 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 comfortable standing in front of an audience just talking and playing songs, and that's basically what you know putting on a solo record and doing yeah. solo tours is you know i mean i don't have the tough thing is you know when you're tuning or when you um you know you don't have someone to pick up the slack right um and there's no that, straight man either if you, if, so there's no straight man if you're gonna yeah. be like the funny guy or there's yeah. no good cop bad cop thing it's like it's all on you yeah and that's that's been a big part of of um how i've you know done shows in the past with with bands right. and with with sarah and chris and we developed this the thing that you do you know and so i think that that was that was the main thing for me is like how am i going to entertain these people you know speaking and the banter was sort of like stagecraft yeah and so um but i quickly became pretty comfortable with it and just really fell in love with uh doing whatever i wanted to and and being able to uh you know realizing that you know a show can be anything you want um the only thing that matters is that people leave feeling like they've been entertained. Yeah. I could sit down and tell jokes to the guy in the front row if I right. want. And um, so um, <laughs> so that was really fun. And that was really fun. And, and realizing that the, the people that were coming to see me, I've, I feel very fortunate because you know, having toured around and, and being in, in bands in Nickel Creek for so long, there's a certain group of people that will come to see my show if I come to their town, you know. And right. It might be a really small group or, you know, medium-sized group, whatever, but um, they're there because they like what I do. Yeah, they've and, paid money yeah, and they're, to see they're, you do your thing. They're, on your, they're at your show. They're on your side. They're not like, yeah. I think there's this opinion with a lot of people or feeling like the, it's you against the audience. The audience shows yeah. up like, let's see what you can do, you know. Yeah. And I think maybe that's true in some areas of music, but not in my area in yeah. my experience I well, think they show up and they're on your team they want you to do good you know yeah well you're fortunate in that regard i mean you know you've earned it you're very talented but you've earned uh you know what exactly what you said you've earned your stripes with nickel creek so when someone sees what you do they know what to expect out of you yeah. um they're already on your side but then it's almost like tabula rasa at this point like well where's the overlap going to be with your old band i mean do you, right. do you do nickel creek songs that are yours yeah. solo in your life the ones the ones i like yeah um i do so many more like you I, that's you know, one that that I, I was on our third record and twenty uh, first of May, which I'll I'll do here today, um, which is on our last record. But yeah, and I I think also in the last few years and with this last solo record, I specifically I've kind of um, um, looked at myself, tried to look at myself objectively, and 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 you know ask myself what am I good at? What's what's um, sort of the essence of my you know yeah. musical talent? And trying to play off that, you know, and that was with the last Nickel Creek record. That that was another. That was some, something we did. Um, you know, we'd been away from it for like six and a half years. We'd done our own things, and we could now look at the band and say, like, what what is it that we do well? Let's just do that and not try to be another band. Yeah. Not try to do what Radiohead does. You know, like, yeah. let's let those people do what they do, and let's yeah. just focus on what we do. Is it like singing? You know, we we feel like we're we we really. We're good at harmony, you know. Yeah. So let's just like put harmony on every song we can. You yeah. Know, let's do that. Let's not get too complicated with certain elements. And um, so that was a big part of why that whole last tour we did in 
2014 was was so fun and so i've tried to do that with myself you know just okay. just just what am i what am i what am i supposed to do musically what's what's um what am i good at and and make the most of that yeah. There's two ways to go about that. I mean, there's, you know, what you said, you mentioned Radiohead, because when I think about it like that, like I, sometimes I'm really like I'm influenced by Tom Petty or Radiohead. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I, I want to have an homage to them. I'll write a song. They've, they've been a big influence in me, influence upon me. And it's easy for me to kind of go into that musical world and kind of do a little bit of that, mm-hmm. you know, and, but there's another way to look at it. Uh, you know, we, so we've already got a Tom Petty. We've already got a Radiohead. We've yeah. already got a Beck or whatever artist you want to mention. Mm-hmm. People, we, Tom Waits, people we revere. So the other way, you know, is to do what you're good at. But then the thing is, like, sometimes you want to push yourself into something. Like, is it, is it good yeah. to focus on your strengths, or is it good to push yourself into an area where you're uncomfortable so that you're doing something kind of scary to you, which then might spark different inspiration? Yeah. So it's just, it's fascinating how everyone's got a different perspective on I think how they it's, go it's about I think it's that. a balance of both, you know? Yeah. I think, for me, the um, what works for me is to be sort of based in... In what what I do, you know, yeah. I, I my the heart of, of my music needs to be where I am, and then going out from there. And I absolutely, you know, pushing yourself is is essential. Um, but I think before I, I've I've in the past I've made records where the heart of the record wasn't where I was yeah. musically. It was the heart of the record was me trying to do was something other than where I actually yeah. was, and that's just that's not a good formula for for good music. Um, I think yeah, you you should remain where you are. Actually, you're the heart of your your heart and soul of your music, and then push as far as you can. You know, in yeah. whatever direction you want. To thine own self be true. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sean, why don't you play a live song if that's cool with you? Yeah. You've got a beautiful old guitar here, a beautiful old Gibson. Uh, what's this first track you're going to play for us? Um, it is. Uh, it's called "Last Time for Everything." And this is from which record? It's from my from the new record. From the new record. Okay, yep, fantastic. It's the second track. Okay, and that's uh, so we already heard uh, "What to Fear." That was the title track from this new record. It just mm-hmm. came out last week. People can pick it up at all the the major retail online outlets. I'd send you to a store if there was one to send you to. I guess Amoeba. Yeah. If you go there, uh, there's fingerprints down in Long Beach. <laughs> there's some cool stores around. Yeah. Uh, and find it on the internet, and of course, SeanWatkins.com. Yeah. So take it away, Sean. Let's play the song. All right. I'm not proud of every story from my life I could tell I took my fair share for granted from others and myself Sometimes I worry I'm doomed to repeat them But there's truth in the words a friend once said to me There's a last time for everything Yeah, there's a last time for everything Her heart was still broken when she caught my eye And the last thing she needed was more wasted time I knew we'd soon fall apart But I kept it up my sleeve She handed me her heart And I returned it with a fling But there's a last time For everything Yeah, there's a last time For everything Ooh. 
go There were lights in my rear view So I pulled over Me and my girl who just turned 20 Tried to act sober The bottle was hidden in her purse While the cops said you're free to leave So we found a diner down the road And drank coffee till three There's a last time for everything Yeah, there's a last time for everything There's a last time for everything Yeah, there's a last time My name is Joe Armstrong. I bring you Independence Day every Wednesday night, 7 o'clock p.m. Pacific time, bringing musicians from around Los Angeles, around California, around America, and around the world, even. And uh, this week's guest, Mr. Sean Watkins. Say hello, Sean. Hello. So happy to have you, man. Uh, background is Nickel Creek, but man, the, the breadth of your musical experience is, is literally uh, incredible, is Thanks. the word to use. Thanks. I mean, it's, you know, I, I guess it's just because I started... So, you know, you know, I started, yeah. I was 12 when I started. Um, and, you know, as a musician, um, you feel so lucky to be able to do what you do. Um, and I, I love playing music. And um, when I'm not playing music, I want to be playing music, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's, you know, and there, you can't be doing one thing all the time. So in, in breaks, you know, I'm, I'm not very good with with downtime, I, I, I'll sit around for a day or two and then I'm like, all right, what are, what are we yeah, doing? You know? So, you know, um, collaborations, I think, you know, within the bluegrass tradition, um, you know, everybody, as opposed to like the pop genre or rock, everybody's got a solo record, you know, like everybody's in a band and they all have solo records. And that doesn't mean that they're trying to be solo artists. It's just what they do. Everyone wants, everyone's working hard doing, you, you've got to do a lot to, to, to make it, you know? Um, so that was just kind of, that seemed normal to me, you know, and then I, in talking to other people, growing up and meeting people in, you know, in other genres, uh, you know, their reaction to what I do is like, man, you really work hard. And I think like, not compared to like some people, like I know people that do like five times as much as what I do, you yeah. know, and it's just part of the genre. It's very, very diverse everyone's striving to to do new things and and different things with new people and that's part of the beauty that's why i love uh that's why i love what i do and there's yeah. always something new there's new challenges there's collaborations and you know if it were up to me i'd be doing you know it is up to me if if i could i i would be doing <laughs> twice twice as much as i'm doing you know i yeah. think um but i i also want to focus you know i i want i want there to be a focus and right now that's my my solo career yeah. But looking back, yeah, there's a lot of different things, a lot of different variations and, and um, band settings I've been in. So let's talk a little bit about uh, like your because you kind of made a switch. I mean, you always wrote music in Nickel Creek, you know, but it was more of a collaborative environment. Did you guys actually the three of you write together? Did you sit down and write together? Obviously, someone comes up with an idea, yeah. but did you kick things around in rehearsals? Um, back then? The first, it's interesting. Yeah, the first um, two records we made. Um, Alison Krauss produced them, and we, at that time, we co-wrote a little bit, but mostly the songs, either they came from just one of us. And it was like, you know, we'd bring a song to the band, and it was like, do you like it, or do you not like it? So it was, and were it was, they, I'm sorry to interrupt, but were they mostly finished at that point? Like, we just, would a song be, be like yeah, 80% be pretty, complete, they'd maybe? They'd be pretty much finished, yeah. And okay. so, like, you know, I'd bring, like, I'd have, like, five new songs, and play for Sarah and Chris, and I could tell 
instantly whether they liked them or not. And um, and everyone did that. And it was either it was either like yes or no. Here's the song. Take it the way it is or leave it. Okay. And um, and then um, our third record, we were um, we're trying to. It was kind of an awkward time. Our second record was sort of our first record was you know felt natural. Second record, we was kind of like a, a little awkward. That's the one that won the Grammy, strangely. But that's kind of like when I look back, it's the like the worst record. Um, it's called This Side. Um, it's just I think we were we were trying to experiment with stuff in a way that we weren't supposed to yet. Um, it's not awful, but it's not you know. In words, we were trying to sort of be more poetic and and um, and reach into new areas of, of subject matter, but we were still pretty young and, and green. So yeah, because at this point. Like by the time like your second album came out, you guys were how old? I was um, probably twenty three. Okay. Um, Sarah and Chris that were, makes them about nineteen. We're about nineteen, and they, you know, and we were homeschooled. I I went to school, you know, um, mostly I went to school, but I homeschooled my last two years. Sarah and Chris were homeschooled pretty much all their lives, and we just played music and we were very sheltered, and so we didn't really have a lot of life experience to draw wow. on. So when we wrote songs, it was. <laughs> You know, we would write from other people's perspectives or what limited experience we'd had. Well, but by that point, I mean, did you, how far did the first record take you as a band on tour? I mean, at that point, once the first record, were you doing national tours yeah. by that point? So you'd seen some stuff. Yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd been a band for 10 years before we did the first record that people know us, us from. We, um, it's the self titled one. Um, but before that, we'd made a bunch of little recordings, and we'd sell them at shows and little tapes and things, you know. Which was a lot harder back then, making yeah. a tape. Like, now you can do it on your phone, practically. Yeah. You yeah. Know, put it on SoundCloud two minutes later. Yeah. Um, so, um, but yeah, our first record, we, we put it out, and it came out right about the time that the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack came out for that movie. Fortuitous. And that, and that was a very, very, I mean, that record sold so many copies um and allison krauss was on it and she'd produced our record so we got like lumped in with that everybody thought we were on the soundtrack but we weren't and uh, we just kind of there was this wave that happened right around that time and pretty quickly um it all came together like within a year i remember we started it was probably 2000 uh i think 2000 then came out um we had like you know, a tour. We we got a manager. We had a booking agent, and it was like uh, we and your were, kids. Your kids. And we were driving around in um in a uh, like a Ford Taurus. You know, and we had a we had a bass player, and he was um his name was Byron House. He played on the first record, and he um none of us could rent cars because we were all under twenty five. So we kind of like sprung it on him at the last minute. We're like, oh by the way, you're gonna have to drive the car and rent him, rent him, and, and drive <laughs> us all around. And then it was it was probably like six months of that, and it got to a place where. Maybe like eight, eight or nine months. It got to a place like we, you know, we've been in a van and we were in vans, and then it was just like, okay, this is these shows are big enough to where we can we can be a bus and we can be on yeah. a bus. And our manager was like, we're sending a bus out like next week, and the bus just showed up. It was great. Wow. And we met it like in somewhere in like you know Missouri, and it just it just showed up and and then um, you know it was pretty much a year solid touring. We came back and it was like it was you know we were playing you know good sized venues, you know like. 1,500, you know, seat theaters. Yeah, more than just, you know, when you're on a van tour, you're kind of at that level, I feel like, where, like, you think of yourself, like, am I doing this? Am I making a mm -hmm. living at this? Because I know people even now, 
people who are on van tours. Like they're getting from city, they're making enough money to keep doing it, yeah, but not much more. Yeah. And I have friends who had what other people would consider to be very successful careers in music mm-hmm. who, when they were on the road, they made enough money to keep doing it, made a little bit of money on the side. But then once they got back on off tour, uh, you know, they were living in their girlfriend's house. Yeah. Because they, they did okay when they're on the road. As long as it's like, like a shark almost, as long as they're yeah. moving, they're alive. Yeah. But then once they get home, they have to stay with their girlfriend yeah. or stay with their parents because yeah. they, they don't have that income. They don't have enough income from record sales because what's that anymore? Yeah. I mean, for most people at least. Yeah. Um, but so you were in a fortunate position so that at that point, you know, records had started to sell. You yeah. must have had income coming from that. Uh, you know, and if they're sending out a bus, I mean, the overhead on a bus isn't particularly cheap. No, but, you know, when you go out for uh, eight, ten months yeah. straight, it, it you know, and you're playing shows at a good size every yeah. night, um, it, it it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. And it's a we the, the bus thing is very interesting. People you know glamorize it a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and there are great things about it. It's way better than a van because I've yeah. done those tours too. Um, but you know there are rules. You know like mm-hmm. uh, what's the one? Did you guys have the no number two in the loo? Oh yeah, rule? there's that's that's a universal rule. Um, yeah. You know I, I I love it. I I sleep really well. Um, yeah. Being on a bus makes it so that you can go out. You know like. If you're in a driving around in a van or a sprinter or whatever, um, you know you're out for a month and that's a nightmare. It's yeah. really you start to go crazy. You're not sleeping well. It's just, but on a bus you can just kind of go out indefinitely. I yeah. can. Um, yeah. I mean, after a while you kind of start to feel a little crazy, but you're getting sleep and um, and you can. You know, you, all you have to do is show up to Soundcheck and play right. the show. They're both alternate realities, and I'm talking about the van tour and the yeah. bus tour. But the bus tour is a far better alternate reality. Yeah, it is. And I've, I, you know, I've toured in so many different situations. I've, from the the least you can do to like really nice buses. Did and, you do the uh, the Ani DeFranco route? Because there was a point like, way back when when she would tour by Greyhound. Do you, no. remember, do you remember those stories? No, no, that's amazing. She would pack up her guitar uh, and just go from town to town in buses. I mean, wow. not like a tour bus, like a yeah. bus bus. Like, can you wow. even imagine? That's crazy. She's fearless. I mean, yeah, I could see that. I mean, that to me, that would be better than driving my own car around. Because yeah. Boy, do you meet crazy people. So tired. Yeah, you meet crazy people. But like, just keeping your eyes open, driving through like Nebraska for five hours, getting to sound check, you're just exhausted. And you're like, oh my gosh, I got to play a show in two hours. Yeah. And, you know, it's fun. And I, I, I mean, it's fine. I'm, I'm grateful to be able to play music. Um, for a living, um, but I was going to say that even I really do appreciate having done the, the least you can do touring wise and pretty close to yeah. the top. Um, I, I I love them all. You know, all the different shades of touring are can be really fun. It's if as long as you're with good people. And you're speaking of touring. I mean, you're about to head out on a pretty big tour. Yeah, uh, basically starting. You know, the record just came out last week. Uh, so you're taking off, you're basically, you know, Massachusetts all down the East coast through the like South back to the Midwest, yeah. basically all the way through May. Yeah. So, and congratulations. Thank you. That sounds like a good adventure to me. Yeah. Now with this tour, you know, we never get to the artist question. I want you to play a song in just a second. We'll mm-hmm. come back to like the, the, the writing thing we were getting at. But so we'll, so at your level, um, Will you tour on a bus for solo stuff too? No, no, I'm, I'll be driving around in a car. Okay. And then will you be solo solo or are you taking some folks um, with you? I am, um... Uh, my girlfriend Dominique Arciero, uh is a great singer and she plays guitar and keyboards. She'll she'll be out with me and she'll be on some stuff. Um, just a great travel buddy, you know. 
Um, and then also opening for me on most of these shows is um, Petra Hayden. Do you know her? Okay, I don't. She's really great. Um, I will look her she up. She is um, uh, the one of three uh, triplet uh, daughters of Charlie Hayden. The, the oh, yes, yes, yes. And um, uh, she and her sisters have a, a band called Hayden Triplets together. And they... Um, they the most logically band name, <laughs> most logical yeah, do, band name of all time. Yeah, they do. Uh, they do a lot of old time um, country and bluegrass songs, and um, I met them through. Um, well, I just I met them and uh, through some other people that I know, and uh, they asked me to play with them. And um, and um, Petra is, uh, she plays violin, and she's got an amazing voice. There's two. They all are great singers, uh, but Petra has been out with you know she's toured with like the Decemberists and. Um, a lot of other people like uh, she plays with uh, Bill Frisell, and um, she goes out as like a you know auxiliary mm-hmm. musician. She's but she's got an amazing amazing voice, and and um, uh, she um, she sang on America. She sings on the song Tribulations, um, and uh, so but she just made a record with this guy Jesse Harris, singer songwriter. Oh yeah, record together. Jesse Harris of Nora Jones writing. Yeah. Jesse mm-hmm. Harris. Yeah, oh, yeah, I know Jesse. So stuff. they're gonna go. Um, she's gonna open the show. And um, she's gonna. Jesse will be there, and actually, my girlfriend's sister is dating Jesse, and she plays drums, and she's gonna be out too. So it's gonna be kind of a group of a group of people, a family um, affair. Yeah, it's just so it's just me and 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 Dominique, my girlfriend, and we'll be in you know separate cars, and we we'll just drive around. But we'll there'll be a lot of collaboration. Very cool. So let's let's take a step back song wise, because I think the next song you're going to play is actually a Nickel Creek song, right? We've been kind of going through the 21st cali- of May, we, yeah. We've been moving forward through, you know, forward and backward through time here. Yeah, this, jumping around. So set this one up for me. What's this one? We'll come uh, back. We'll talk more about songwriting. <laughs> I always um, uh, talk about this at the shows and ask people if they remember uh, when um, when the rapture almost happened back back in um, 2011. Um, uh, there was this, you know, crazy kind of a uh, radio TV preacher named Harold Camping who who uh predicted the the rapture um and end of the world end of the world and it. and had a lot of money he has it's like this syndicated show and um he had like million dollars millions and millions of dollars were put into this ad campaign and i was i was driving around um on may 21st i was living in hollywood at the time and i saw or sorry it was may 20th in 2011 i saw this big billboard and i'd been seeing him around and they just said uh uh, May twenty first is Judgment Day, and there was like a little silhouette of a guy kneeling and with a hellish hue behind him, you know. And and I remember thinking, like, I mean, that's there's so much um, must have cost so much, you know. Like this yeah. sign was like right in the middle of Hollywood. It normally would have been like a Coca Cola sign or Reebok yeah. or Vitamin Water or something. And um, you know, I kind of realized that they were all over the country, and there's like TV commercials and stuff. And um, it reminded me of a lot of. Uh, uh, there's a lot of old bluegrass songs that are about that, you know, and um, Lubin Brothers. Yeah, lots of yeah, like Satan is real. Um, there's so many, and I love them. There's actually one on my record by this guy named E. C. Ball called um, Tribulations. That's another one that I like. And um, I had this old melody kind of kicking around, and I couldn't figure out what to write about, what lyrically to put in there. And um, when I saw this sign, I was like, "There we go." Yeah. You know, so I went right home and I wrote it. There's your song. And um, yeah, 21st of May. So. That's what it has ended up being on the latest Nickel Creek record, and that that whole concept—I I call it rapture porn—because 
you know, it's like people who get to work themselves up in oh, a yeah. fervor about yeah. that kind of thing. They love it. And it's going to come. And then, I, then, of course, like the jokes just are, are, are endless. You yeah. know, it's like, well, well, should I get new tires for my truck? Yeah. I, maybe I won't bother, you know. People I actually, I it's such a dangerous thing. People, I mean, yeah, yeah. if you believe it, that's, that's whatever. That's your decision. But people like ran up their credit cards. Yeah. You know, they, they really thought that they were not going to be around and yeah so and you're they, getting you get into jonestown territory yeah. pretty quick right pretty quick. there and then then i mean that's that's and then it becomes a tragedy and a, it's very careful it's a responsibility i think there's a certain type of person that's susceptible to that and yeah. um I, I don't know what makes people susceptible to that but I, I think it's also exciting to some people to think you know like yeah they've got the you know after all the times it's been predicted they've they've yeah. got the right one you know this is the time and then it becomes the ultimate like sad like rapture sad trombone yeah <laughs> All right, so this is Sean Watkins. You know him from Nickel Creek and Watkins Family Hour and lots of other really, really cool music stuff. This is his song, 21st of May, from the most recent Nickel Creek album, Sean Watkins on Independence Day. This one's called 21st of May, and it's uh, it's about our semi-recent near miss with the rapture, which almost happened in 2011. Time to bend this old world goodbye Oh glory, time to fly away We'll meet our Savior in the sky Hallelujah, the 21st of May Sinner, heed these words of mine About the coming judgment day Yes, the end is drawing nigh. Hallelujah, the 21st of May. They laugh while no one builds his boat, and then crying when came the rain. And they mock me now, but I will float on the 21st of May. In the fall of 94 But hallelujah The 21st of May They laughed while no one Built his boat And then cried When came the rain And they mocked me now But I will float On the 21st of May
My name is Joe Armstrong. That is Sean Watkins with a song from Nickel Creek. That is 21st of May. Hey, Sean, thanks for being on the show, man. So glad to be here. This is fun. And I'm glad you're digging it. I am too, man. Such a great time talking to you. So many different things to talk about. We've got the sad <laughs> trombone of the, the failed rapture. We've got touring in buses versus vans. Yeah. We've got... Uh, all these different things. And you've got a brand new record. It just came out last week, What to Fear. We've already heard the song from that. People should drop by Amazon. Actually, you know what? Buy, but you, you sell records at shows, right? I do, I do. And, and that's, um, I, tell, I chide people. Always, if you like an artist, buy their record at the show. Yeah. Cut out the middleman. Put that money in their pocket. Because yep. even a, success, a successful musician, that the, that measure of that success has changed in the new millennium. And they mm-hmm. need that money, man. They they work hard. And every, like Gillian Welch says, everything is free now, man. Yeah. I know that song really kind of hit the nail on the head. And she, she did it early on. Um, yeah. I think uh, records essentially now are something I keep sake to buy at a show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, or actual CDs. Did you um, do vinyl? No, I didn't. It becomes like a keepsake, keepsake at that point. Yeah. It becomes, but it's expensive, though. I would like to do vinyl. I just, it, you know, um, it is, yeah, it's expensive. And there's a long lead time, too. Very long like, lead you time. You have to have, I mean, is it, I remember talking to a friend of mine recently, uh, is it six to nine months, Yeah, I it's think, like a, maybe? Well, I think it's like two to three months. I okay. mean, it depends on who Maybe you're. they've sped it up. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely, um, definitely a long time. But, um... Yeah, I think I think CDs now are a keepsake for the show. It's something to sign, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's a weird time, but it's um, yeah. I, I you're right. It's it's really good. Sometimes the CD sales are like the only thing that kind of like make you make money on on the road, right. you know, because yeah. you're selling merch. Without it, you know, without people buying merch, you 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 probably would you know end up in. Yeah. The, Do you see download revenue? I mean, you must from Nickel Creek. I, or I from think streaming, so. Streaming revenue. Um, I don't. If if I do, I don't know about it. Um, I just I don't expect it. And so, if it goes into my, you know, I've got a business manager. If 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 it goes into my bank account, then I, I don't really. Yeah. I think it's small. You know. Yeah. It it takes so much to break to break even these days. It's very very strange that the mechanics of this have changed so drastically, so rapidly. I know David mm-hmm. Lowry. He's got a class action from Cracker and mm-hmm. from Camper Van Beethoven has a, has a class action lawsuit going against one of the big streaming services. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I have friends who revere him for this, and I have friends who think he's a dinosaur and that he's he's going down with the ship. He's like the captain mm-hmm. of the Titanic. Right. And like anything else, I feel like this in the modern paradigm of the music industry is it good or bad? And the answer is yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's both. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it can't be stopped. It is what it is. It's it is just what, what it is. is. And um, we keep doing it. Yeah, I did ask Gillian Welch. I met her once after a show, and you know, it was kind of a dopey question. It was like, well, is that song about Napster? Because at the time, she was so ahead of the curve with yeah. that concept, and she said, it's not not about Napster. Yeah, no, I I, I know that that song is about it. Yeah, it's yeah. about that. And well, it's um, obvious now. Yeah, she's talked about it a little bit. Um, yeah, she really saw it coming. I mean, that was still. I mean, that record that was on Revelator, I think. Which yeah. You know, came out like in the early two thousands. Yeah, you know, and yeah. so she was, and records were still s- selling, but she could see, she could see it going that way. Yeah, the writing was on the wall, and the wall was collapsing. I think. Yeah, at, at all at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, like I said, we we can we can gnash our teeth about it, we can lament about it, or we can get busy making great music. Exactly. And let, yeah. the, let the industry figure I, it out. We've all had so many conversations about you know that that it's a sort of tired old complaining about you know conversation and it doesn't it's not productive it doesn't do anything um i think you know it's it's you can't change it um fighting against it is is not going to really do much unless you're like taylor swift you know which right will make a blip you know um but 
yeah, I mean, I'm just, when it comes down to it, I've always felt like, you know, I can, um, if I can go out and play a show and a few people will come see me, yeah. that's great. And that, you can't, that can't be taken away from you. Yeah. Well, you it's know? something, I mean, we're, we're going to keep making music. Yeah. We're going to, you know, people, it's not like people are going to stop doing this. People love doing it. It's, it's like yeah. a, some people call it an avocation. Uh, for me, it's almost a compulsion. Mm-hmm. The phrase I've used before is like, well, I can't not do it. Right. I'm exactly. going to do it yep. one way or another. So I might as well just keep doing it mm-hmm. and make it as yeah, good as I can make it. Yeah, and you know, it. you just diversify. You know, you have to do, I think that's another reason why I've got, you know, I've done so many different projects is because you kind of have to, you know. Yeah. You have to. And, and I mean, mostly I want to, but, you know, uh, yeah, you, you get a lot of people doing lots of different things now, which is, which is fine. And our research assistant, Dorothy June. Uh, yeah. The the quadruped of the house has decided to come into I'm the really studio. Glad she planted herself right in front of me. Planted herself right in front of you, and, uh, very and happy. she's well. You know, she dogs are like the most calming, wonderful. I'll, I'll take a picture of this. We'll Please put it up do. on the website. And this is Dorothy June visiting with Sean Watkins. Say hello, Dorothy yeah. June. <laughs> How old is she? Uh, Dorothy June is seven years of age, which is a good year, good age for a dog. She just want to come in and say hi. Now. She's gonna roll around here. <laughs> That's great. Anyway, it's just, you know she's and she loves music. It's funny. Like if you play a little, here, Sean's got his guitar here. Just just play a little bit. She'll probably like. This is for the dog. This is for you, Dorothy June. <laughs> it's like music calms the savage beast. Like usually she'll just kind of chill out. Anyway, so that's, that's enough for dog talk here on Independence Day. Uh, Sean, thank you again for coming on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to get to this like songwriting thing. I was reading a couple interviews with you last night about how your songwriting has changed over the over time. But why don't we play another live song first? Here? Okay. So we've got a bunch of songs to get to. What's this next one going to be? Uh, this one's called "Wave as We Run," and it was um, a friend a friend of mine um, had this opportunity. Someone who was putting together music for a movie. Um, they wanted a song, and they wanted it to sound like a particular Pearl Jam song, which Interesting. is very strange. It so was like I think maybe it was like that. an Eddie Vedder solo thing. It was like it was one that was just like finger picked acoustic guitar, and and he was singing. I don't know if it was Pearl Jam. Anyway, they sent the song as a reference, and um and they needed it like by the end of the day. And, wow! Um, and so uh, a good friend of mine, Sam Barbera, she's a really cool musician. We were roommates for a while. Um. She called me in the morning. Was like, "Hey, um, you know, they want a song." So um, we worked on it all day, and I wrote like this melody. She wrote most of the words. We we like emailed back and forth. This is like eight years ago, and um, and uh, finally ended up with this song. We sent it to the people. I was you know really pleased with it, and sent them a little demo. And they you know wrote back. They were like, "This is perfect." And the next line was like but we're going to use another song. <laughs> oh, boo. Classic, classic kind of Hollywood thing yeah. to happen. Um, but, you know, you get a song, got a song out of it. So yeah. um, this is uh, this is that song. It's called Wave As We Run. Okay, Sean Watkins on Independence Day once again. Like love's vagabonds 
I'm a stubborn man But I'm fooled in my head You're the only place I call home And I will learn to let it go Staying so long There's backwards and wrong Like the moon the sun For songs left unsung There every heart and hill I roam You're the only peace I've known My name is Joe Armstrong. I come to you every week on Independence Day. Please drop by indepday.com. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y.com to hear 155 episodes. We've had some great, great people on here. I'm very, very proud to bring you each and every one of them. Uh, I've loved meeting them to a man and a woman. They are great human beings, and they do what the best thing you can do as a human being, which is share their art, share their heart, share their music with people. So uh, Sean Watkins, no exception. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. So happy to be here. This is fun. And you were talking before how that song, great song, by the way, excellent, beautiful song, but you were talking about how you wrote it for a movie and it didn't get used. And as a really, really short aside, Pink Floyd's song, Us and Them, Mm-hmm. From Dark Side of the Moon, oh, one of the mm-hmm. biggest selling albums of all time, was written for a movie. Yeah. Someone wanted uh, a song for like a really violent, I think it was uh, some police, kind of Gestapo type police beating up protesters mm-hmm. somewhere. I don't know if it was somewhere, I don't know where it was in the world. And Roger Waters wrote that very tranquil kind of drifting uh, with uh, uh, Richard Wright, mm-hmm. that kind of lilting, calm, almost dreamlike song, which they yeah. kind of went against what was on screen. Yeah. And then same thing, they sent it to the people and they're like, oh, that's a great song, but we're not going to yeah. use it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it happens a lot. And um, I'm happy to, you know, to do that anytime, even, you know, even knowing that the odds are, are not in my favor. Um, Cause it sort of uh, spurs you to write something that you wouldn't have written otherwise, you know? Yeah. And um, it did also, you, did you get to see the, the movie or did, no, or did it just kind of gave you the concept and run with just, it? Just, they just, give you the concept um yeah they tell you 
very little. And basically, they just said it. They want it to sound like this song, kind of okay. have that, have this vibe. That's very, very common. Yeah, it's just you know, write something that sounds like this so that we don't have to pay them. Exactly. Um, well, if you talk to movie people, a lot of times, you know, when I, by movie people, I mean people who are actually making movies, right. production people. Uh, they'll, in the rough cut of a song or, or a movie, they'll put a song that they're thinking of, and it might be from the Beatles or it might be from the Stones. Yeah. But like only people, it feels like like Scorsese will pony up the money mm-hmm. to actually pay to get Stone songs in your yeah. movies. I just, um, I just uh, finished scoring a movie. Um, an independent film called Cortez, which was really, really fun to do. It was my first time doing it. Um, uh, and the yeah, they had like um, some other soundtrack type stuff that was in there, like um, from um, uh, like some Ray Cooter stuff from Paris, Texas. Um, some other, like there was like a Ryan Adams song at one point. Um, and they put it in there just like, here's like a direction, you know, put it in, like here's a direction, um, but these people were great. The people that made this movie, they were like, you know, this is just kind of placeholder stuff. We want you to do what you what you do, and um, so that that was a great experience, and it, all of it ended up getting used. So. so now go there for a second. That's really really interesting to stumble across this talking to you. Did you now to do this? Did you kind of stick to your wheelhouse stuff and play mostly acoustic guitar, or did you use that as an opportunity to kind of expand and, um, and use ideas you wouldn't normally use in your songs? I did a lot of stuff that I don't normally do. I, uh, there's a lot of um, electric guitar with this really cool spring reverb pedal I have, and like kind of fade ins, sort of like um, you know, like a pedal steel. Um, uh, played some upright bass, Mellotron, a lot of stuff that I don't normally do, but um, I can do, and. Um, stuff that I wouldn't do for a solo record, but um, stuff that works fine in a film. And you know, with with film, you it's really interesting because you can do so much, and it, the music really does affect how the mu- the film hits you emotionally. You're yeah. basically telling people like how to feel, you know. Yeah. And um, you're providing emotional resonance or an emotional touchstone mm-hmm. for something on exactly. screen. Are, am I supposed to feel happy about this or sad yeah. about this? Because think about it. You could juxtapose that very, very easily. Yeah. Someone's and, and getting it, murdered on screen and you play a little ragtime thing. And it can be very effective that way too. Right. You know, like there's, what's that Quentin Tarantino movie where it's like this brutal, brutal murder and there's like this um, happy song. Anyway, you know, like that, that happens and it, it's like, that can be very effective. It's like, really creepy you know the reservoir um, dogs i think is it stuck in the middle is that yeah the thing i'm thinking yeah yeah, of? yeah i think that's it so i think that's like when he cuts off his ear sign he's yeah. essentially torturing the guy exactly yeah it's stuck in the middle with you um so that you know that's one way to go about it but i think for um for me and this is it was all instrumental the sound the soundtrack the score um it was just about and it's it's fine you work really closely with the directors and yeah. um you know, I was given the film like a long version, which is like two hours, and then they cut it down to like an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, I was given that and just kind of like I didn't know how to I didn't know where to start. So I just picked a you know, picked a, a, a like a, a key moment in the middle or, you know, wherever, something that was important and found something that worked for that and you know that the director liked and I had her over and played it for her and she was like I kind of like that I don't like that I really like this you know okay. I I had a few ideas and then found the one that she liked and we just I just sort of spiraled out from there and did the the rest of the the stuff but you know I'd work for like 2 weeks she'd come over I you know she would give me and I would get direction and that was really great it was very informative and then I'd rule out a bunch of other ideas and then you know ended up sticking with like sort of five, four or five instruments and themes that um, come and go and are played in different keys, different um, 
instruments that go throughout the movie. And I, reading, I find scoring to be ridiculously fascinating. Mm-hmm. I have friends who do it. I've done a tiny little bit of it myself. I remember reading, uh, I'm a big Mark Knopfler fan, and he's mm-hmm. done a bunch of movie scoring over the years. He did Princess yeah. Bride, Local Hero, Cal, yeah. wow. um, and uh, uh, Wag the Dog. Mm-hmm. And when he did his first one, I think Princess Bride was his first one. Wow. You know, And he said it was the most challenging thing he'd ever done. Yeah. Because he you know, came up multi-million selling yeah. rock musician with a very interesting style. Uh, and it was unlike anything he'd ever done before. Like working within the confines of yeah. visual art was a mm-hmm. very strange thing for him. Yeah. Um, but then there's other ways to go about it too. Like Neil Young did Dead Man. Where and he's done other things where he'll they just he'll like play the movie and mm. he'll just kind of play live along to it right you know so there's just so many it's like tabula rasa yeah there's so many ways to come at it I think that yeah that's kind of the way I did it was just sort of watch it go by and then just have a guitar and just see what happens and you know or like you know I had Mellotron or like a little keyboard and um and that's a good place to start you know just sit there and go like you know. And it could yeah. be something as simple as that, right? And and a lot of times your first reaction is kind of a kind of works, yeah. Um, and so yeah, and you know do that, and then do a couple other options, and then have people watch it. And um, but I think a lot of yeah, a lot of those soundtracks just happen with some guy sitting there watching it on the screen, and he's got a microphone in front of him. Yeah. Now, this is a great opportunity to kind of bring this into writing because then once you had done the scoring thing, that was a very recent thing that you've done mm-hmm. the scoring yeah. thing. Have you gone back to writing? Like song songs after that yet? Because to me, like that's a very key moment. I feel like you would learn something really important doing a movie yeah. score. Um, I haven't written anything. I just finished it like a couple weeks ago, um, and I haven't I haven't written anything yet. But yeah, it, I definitely learned a lot. I um, you know I experimented with a lot of different things in the in the making of the score. Things that I haven't done before because I just wanted to find a sound that worked for that scene. Yeah. So it's like, okay, here's this instrument. Uh, you know, I've got like this tenor. Um, uh, it's like a national tenor guitar. You know, metal guitar, but it's like a resonator. With, yeah, with like, you know, like let's see what this sounds like. You know, if I put a mic on the other side of the room and run it through this weird pedal that I've never, yeah, yeah. you know, um, you know, stuff like that, where you're like experimentation that would not have happened. Otherwise, yeah, um, you're painting with sound at that point. Yeah, you you have to find new colors, and and um and it really pushes you outside your your normal. Um, it pushed me outside my normal zone because what I do, you know, um, playing guitar and the, the stuff that's just sort of in my wheelhouse was not necessarily um what was best for the film. Yeah. you know, it started off being you know thinking that it, I think the director hired me because she thought that um I mean I know her she's a friend um. And I think she kind of thought that that what I do might be a nice sort of base for the you know the sound, but as as we started working on it, I realized that like it needed to be different than what I what's sort of in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Um. So I just started experimenting with other things. Do we know when we'll see that movie? When is it? I don't know when it's coming out. Fall, um, I'm going to a screening. I'm going to a screening tomorrow. Uh. But you know, it's I think it's. It's like in the music business, you make your own record and then you shop it around. You know, yeah, like you yeah. never really know. So they're. They're gonna take it to some festivals and stuff. Um, yeah, so it could be a year or more at that point. Could be, yeah, yeah. And you know, they're the timelines with these things are. It's crazy. They'll make something and then it, you know, they'll start working on a new, you know, movie and then like halfway through, this one comes out and it's, yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. I've been. So what's the title of the movie? It's called Cortez. 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 Okay. Yeah, and it takes place in the 
the fictional town of Cortez, which um, it was all shot in Taos, New Mexico. So it's very, okay. very beautiful. Lots of picturesque, you know, soundscapes. And it's um, the, the main character is sort of a washed up musician who's trying to find his way. And um, it's good. It's a really good movie. So will you pick up the phone the next time someone calls you for a scoring gig? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was so fun. And I feel like I, I mean, it was my first one. I can't say I've got a handle on it. But I, 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 what was very, very mysterious to me um, when I started it, like it's how to how to begin, yeah. is a little more clear now. Okay. And also just having your foot in the door a little bit, you know, like um, it's hard for someone to call somebody who's never scored anything and say, "Hey, do you want to score my movie?" Especially these days. Um, so at least I have something to show people, yeah. <laughs> you know. But it was amazingly fun, and and I can't I can't wait to do more. I look forward to the movie, man. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you, you I, make I great music, so I'm looking forward to hearing what you do on a screen. It's such a different, it's a different, like different side of your brain, or somehow it combines is. both sides of your brain. It is. And it's really interesting because there's a lot of, you know, there's my sort of going into it. My mindset was like, let's fill fill it up with music. You know, but there's so many. T- there's like 20 minutes in the middle that doesn't have a music and doesn't. There's no music that would make it better. Yeah. And so it's. I've learned that you know it's kind of looking. Looking for those, you know, being aware of those moments and not wasting your time trying yeah. to fill it up when the acting is just fine. Yeah. yeah, well, you know as well as I do when you're an, a musician of any accomplishment whatsoever that uh, it's the space between the notes sometimes it's just as important as yep. the notes themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, that's enough, Hallcar- that's enough Hallmark philosophy. <laughs> Let's I've, been, I've been teasing everybody. I want to talk to you about writing okay. because I've been reading some interviews and doing pre-production for our, our discussion today. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you said that your most recent record was like the first thing you were like really wholly proud of, which I thought was really interesting to have, you know, by that point you'd been a musician for 20 years, mm, probably. Yeah, about, uh, yeah, well, 30 years now. 30 I started years. when I was nine, I'm 39 No, now. but that, by that, that last record though, I guess that was, was that All I Do Is Lie? Was yes. that what you said that about? Mm-hmm. So my, I guess my question for you, I mean, is it's not directly related to that, but it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, you had you'd been writing all all along in a collaborative environment. Mm-hmm. Now you're turned loose to do it on your own. But then finding your, excuse me, finding your own voice, musical voice, not just your singing voice, mm-hmm. was kind of a pivotal moment. Or finding your artistic voice, your writing voice, mm-hmm. was a pivotal moment. Is that yeah? Is that the way I, I understand this? Yeah, definitely. And you know, I just remembered I started telling a story earlier about when you asked about co-writing in Nickel Creek. And, you know, when we, our first two records we wrote individually. Our third record, we were trying to do something new, and we were actually talking with Rick Rubin about producing. We'd met with him a couple times, and he we'd, we'd written, like, 30 songs that we gave him, and they were all, like, you know, individual-type songs. There was a couple co-writes, but mostly just individual. And he was like, he's like, I really, um, he liked one of them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, we were like, what? You only like one of the 30? And you, you're like, why would you even want to produce us? And he's like, you, should, you guys need to co-write with other people and with each other. And um, we were like, you know, really? We can, I think we were we were too afraid that uh, that if one person criticized the other in some way that it would be like, we'd break up. Like, you know, we couldn't, we at that point we couldn't say, I like the verse, but the chorus is not that great. Um, and, he, along with like a couple of people, like Glenn Phillips, who we were palling around with at the time, and we still are, but uh, he was like, you guys, you, people do that. Just co-write, and if, if you don't like the whole thing, just be honest, and it's going to be fine. You yeah. Know? Like, just think about what's going to be best for the song, not what's best for, like, you know, you wrote this whole song, you know. Think of, you know, uh, a song as being good, and don't think of the, you know, a, a, a better song that's co-written is much more valuable than an okay song that's written by just you. 
Yeah. And so once we broke through that, it really, really helped us. And that was our, our third record, Why Should the Fire Die, was really heavily co-written, as well as our last record. And I think you know this because of that, the songs were so much better. You've okay. got three filters. And, and so you know, um, I've sort of... Uh, I, I wrote most of these songs on this record myself... The new record. Um, now you're speaking. The new about. record. Yeah, and then and the one before it. Why should the? Um, sorry. Um, um, all I do is lie. Uh, I think I just kind of came to a point of uh, you know a new state where I, I felt comfortable with myself. I was in, you know in my, my mid thirties, and I felt like um, comfortable in my own skin, comfortable writing about my own experience and being honest and not trying to be too tricky and not trying to. Uh, not trying to um, dress things up or do things that weren't in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Whereas that's I'd done that in the past, and so yeah, these last few records, I I feel good about them. Whereas in the past, I'd put out a record and then I hate it in a year and yeah. re- feel embarrassed about my my skills, my songwriting, what words I use. I listen to like words I use in those old records, and it's like it's just it's just not good. It's not. I and I think I I just I learn an important thing to learn for songwriters is to learn what you like and why you like it and what you don't like and why you don't like it. And so I would listen to like, you know, Randy Newman and say, I really like this song because of this, the way he uses these particular lyrics, you know, or Gillian Welch, you know, um, and, um, uh, and just to analyze it. So you know yourself and you know what you like and what you think is good. And rather than just like throwing stuff to the wall to see if it sticks, how about yeah. this word? How about this song? How about this? You know, like that's kind of I think what I was doing. Yeah. What a long a lot of young songwriters. Well, do. you're you're in the very unique position of having grown up in the public eye as a musician, both literally in your life and as a musician, which is it's got to be a double challenge. I mean, did you ever feel? I mean, maybe was it pressure on yourself? You know, growing up because now you're like you're criticizing your earlier work. I yeah. guess is what I'm getting at. So, but you were in a position where you were forced, and I mean. I know some people, you know, they, they write and they write and they write and they write, and it takes them 20 years to get a song to where people hear it. Yeah. Your very first things you'd ever done, people played all over the place. Well, the the Nickel Creek stuff is different because it, it, it goes through, you know, it went through the the filter of Allison Krauss and then the rest of the band. And, okay. And, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that just got thrown out that was not good. The support structure was very different then. Yeah, yeah, for those, you know, when you're working with a band and a producer, that's that's a whole different thing than than just writing a song by yourself and putting it on a solo record. Yeah. So, those songs got you know, she changed them, she weeded out words that weren't good. She, she didn't change them. She Al- didn't change them that. Being much. the producer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so she um she a lot of those songs that we wrote on there uh were different before she <laughs> before she came along, which is great. She really and she also um one thing we wanted to do with our first record was make something that was really energetic and it was like our live show that had that energy. And I remember she said like, there's a total, there's a big difference between playing live and making a record and, uh, making a record like that sounds like a live record. Um, it may not be the best thing. It's like those, those kind of records don't wear well. They get, yeah. they people get tired of them. So you need to think of it totally different. You know, it's like going to be slower. It's going to be like its own thing. Yeah. And, that really, you know, that's that makes those songs a lot better than they would have been. Um, so I guess it just takes time. Took time for me to learn um, what, how to sort of be critical of myself, how to critique yeah. my own songs, how to listen to them from another point of view. Like if I didn't write this song, would I like it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
Um, so who are, I mean, let me jump in for just a second. So, you know, you'd been, first of all, this, a real quick aside, like who are the guitar players? I mean, we're, this is going to, this is going to make sense in just a second. It's mm-hmm. going to sound like a left field question, but who are the guitar players that, that you revered or like the flat picking people, like the people that made you want to play guitar that yeah. you, when you were a kid, like that's people, what I want to do. Uh, nobody, probably anyone <laughs> would have heard of, I mean, the bluegrass crowd, there's, uh, there's, um, some amazing guitar players. They just don't really, you know, they sometimes are used as session players on country records or whatever. But, um, uh, you know, a short list would be this guy, Scott Nygaard's really great from the Bay area. Tony Rice. He's like the, yeah. you know, flat pick God of, uh, of, you know, the universe in all time. The, yeah. Um, Russ Berenberg's really great. Um, you know, he's one of those guys that has like a day job. He, you know, bluegrass, amazing bluegrass guitar player. But he works like at Saturn in Nashville or something. Interesting. Um, or at least he used to. And um and he's yeah, he's just amazing. Uh and then, you know, people other I listen to a lot of other people that didn't play guitar, you know, the crowd of um uh, you know, Jerry Douglas, Bela Fleck, Edgar Meyer. Just monster players on um, their respective instruments. Yeah, Stuart Duncan. Um and you know, try to try to glean what I could from other instruments because it's it's cool when you listen to a lot of guitar players, you end up doing a lot of guitar-y stuff. But if you listen to other, yeah, you know, listen to a piano player and try to learn that the way they put their notes together, um, you're gonna get something different, you know, than yeah. that's not meant to be played on guitar. And so yeah. I try to try to do a lot of that. So okay, here's how we boomerang back into what we were talking about before. Now, when you pivot to that, as you become a writer, especially for your, I'm speaking for your own material, like in the past couple of albums, as you've grown into yourself as what you feel as a writer, then those people that you're revering or you're looking to become different people. Mm-hmm. You know, so who are those people, I guess is what I'm saying. Like as a guitar player, you know, you look to this person, that person, this person, they may not even be guitar players. Mm-hmm. But as a writer, mm-hmm. were those people different? Was there overlap? Like you mentioned Randy Newman, you mentioned some other folks. Well... Like, yeah, I mean, when I when I first started, I didn't really write for a long time. You know, I mean, dabbled. I would write instrumentals, but I didn't really write lyrics until I was, you know, in my like early twenties. You know, or maybe twenty, twenty one. Um, and uh, so, you know, the 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 players that the people that I looked up to were players. They were mostly just instrumentalists. You know, right? Um, and there were singers and and songwriters that I liked, but. Um, when I, I, the, the first person I really connected with and, um, and wanted to emulate was Glenn Phillips of To The West Brocket. I, I got into them after they'd broken up and there was a record, their last record they made, which, which is called Coil. Um, somehow I, I got my hands on it and, um, and, uh, just the stuff he was writing about the, um, the words he was using and the, the emotion was really it just really got to me, and then, and then he put out a solo record, this first solo record, which is called Abulum, and uh, you know, it was so brutally honest and raw, and he talked about subject matter that I just didn't think was possible you could get away with, and um, in a very eloquent way with great chords, and and his voice was great. So he was kind of the first person that sort of broke me out of the shell of um, writing songs like bluegrass type okay. things, you know. Um, and uh yeah you know looking back you know and then through him i discovered the amazing music scene that revolves around largo here in los angeles and started going to see people you know like john bryan um and i've seen so many amazing people play there and i was exposed to all kinds 
of new music that I wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. And, um, you know, Amy Mann, Fiona Apple, that's where we met. Um, I've seen like so many, you know, I've seen like one night, uh, at the old Largo, which was a, a tiny little pub, uh, John Bryan would play every Friday night and, um, and, uh, you know, he's this amazing musician and composer and producer and he's, he's an idol to a lot of people. And I remember seeing, he would do two sets. He would do one that started at like 9.30 or 10 to like 12.30 and he would do one from like 1 to 2. And that most people would leave for the second set. It'd be like 50 people left. Um, and I remember coming in, watching, just coming in for like a Guinness and to see what, whatever, what was ever happening. And it was like, John's playing piano. Kanye West was rapping. Michelle Gondry was playing drums, the music video the, producer. Uh, yeah, yeah, the video director. And he's done movies. As yeah, well. he did. He did um, uh, Eternal, Eternal Sunshine. Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And then the singer for Maroon Five was like playing guitar. Adam and singing. Levine. Yeah, Is that his name. Yeah, just like the the most crazy group of people, <laughs> you know. And there's so many nights that, that I saw that were like that, um, you know, or like Beck, or um, uh, I mean. Yeah, Randy Newman I've seen play there. Uh, amazing, cool performances by um, these songwriters that are doing amazing things. And uh, so, yeah, I think Largo was kind of my end to, to all those, the, the new universe of songwriters like that. And so, and then lastly, I know we've got one more song and I got to boot you out of here because we got things to do. But uh, this, the Watkins Family Hour, which is now, which started as just you and Sarah and mm-hmm. Just you and Sarah initially, whoever we right? Did, yeah, we, and whoever we was just, around. Yeah, whoever was around. And so, I mean, how did you feel? I mean, at that point, you know, Nickel Creek had been had done well. You were doing well with Nickel Creek, and but at what point did people figure out that, that like other musicians figure out that they could just come down and show up and play? I guess that's the that's the interesting turn. Yeah. It's like it could just be you and Sarah playing songs into perpetuity. But like, did you just kind of make it known? Did you have like a bat signal you put up over the Los Angeles <laughs> skyline and said, "Hey, Matt Chamberlain, come down to Largo"? Yeah. Well, like, there was how, a, how did that turn? Like, when did that worm turn? Um, it's well, there was already a scene built in, you know, and John okay. Bryan was sort of the, the king of it. He would bring in uh, people to play with him, but then it, it, the guy who runs it, his name is Mark Flanagan. He um, is this Irish guy who moved moved to the states, and um, uh, he just has an amazing. He wanted to, I think he went to school to be a psych- psychologist, at like Yale or Harvard, and then came out to California, discovered this little club, walked into it, and there was, a, I think, Grantley Buffalo was playing or something like that. And he decided, I want to do this. I want to make a scene. I want to foster this. This um, There's an amazing music scene in Los Angeles. So he just, he curates this club, and now it's at a theater. And, um, and he started this club that's uh, half music, half comedy, and he has a very strict no photo no photography no talking policy so the musicians that play there are you know incredible like Brad Meldow will go and do a set you know um of you know people that wouldn't pull up with a noisy bar crowd and um, it's we'll the kind of place if i remember there were nights where you wouldn't know who was going to play right you would just get a reservation Get a table, yeah, maybe, and then maybe this is before they moved. Because yeah. I remember reading, it was very, very strict rules. Like you yeah. could go, but you and you had to get food, right? But you, and then you'd sit, but then you wouldn't even know who would play. Because that's the kind of very unique place yeah. that doesn't exist very many places in the world. Or it would be like one person's here and then a special guest, you know, so and so with very with special guests. Um, you know, Sarah Silverman has done nights there forever. She still does a monthly show. She does monthly. So anyway, we we met Glenn Phillips through a mutual friend. 
and you know he was like Elvis to us at the time, and it was so cool. So uh, I remember um, uh, we met through mutual friend. Email emailed I emailed him and said, "Hey, I just wanted to you know meet you." And um, and he was like, "Yeah, cool. Come up and play. Um, I'm playing at this place called Largo." Um, why don't you come up and open for me? You know, so me and Sarah and Chris drove up. And we were like freaking out. Drove up from San Diego. We're at my parents' house, staying there, and um, and just fell in love with the vibe and started going to see other people. And um, um, and then after about a year, Flanagan, who runs runs the place, was like, "You guys should start a show." Um, you know, we we started sitting in with people a lot with um, John Bryan, and and we played a lot there with Glenn and. Uh, David Garza, um, Grantly Phillips, and then comedy shows like the Naked Trucker Show, which is amazing. Um, Paul F. Tompkins, we would go and be special guests, and so we sort of had a we had a rapport there. We'd been playing there, and so he asked us, you know, Mark Flanagan asked us to to um, start if we want to start a, a monthly show, and we were freaking out. We're like, this is amazing. We're joining the joining the ranks of all these great people that have monthly shows here. So um, he's like, just we'll call it the Watkins Family Hour. You can come play songs, play covers, try out new songs. It doesn't matter how many people come. I don't care. But you should be doing this, you know. And so we put together a little group of friends. You know, had like it was me and Sarah, Gabe Witcher, great fiddle player, friend of ours, lives here. A couple other people, and you know, it was great because it was a very different thing than Nickel Creek, and we were touring Nickel Creek all the time, and so this was like a anti-touring you know it's like you play songs you play covers play songs you can't play on the road you know um you try out new songs and and it's rough and it's like you know you know and you never know who's going to show up so basically we started and pretty quickly we started meeting people we met ben montench who was going there all the time he's the you know piano player in the heartbreakers tom petty um and john bryan and fiona apple and um you know bass players like uh um michael zondo um Jay Bellrose used to play with us a lot. Ethan Johns played. We come down and and we just started um, meeting people through these other people, and then they would come. It was you know a lot of times these people just come to see shows. They didn't know who was playing. They would just show up and be like, "Oh, cool, you know, this is a great band. I'll go meet you." You know, um, everyone went to all these different shows, not knowing who was going to be there because it was just a cool scene, and it still is. And um, so you know, within a couple months, we had a great little group of musicians greg lease would come come down legendary pedal steel player yeah and um and we were i realized very, we both realized very quickly that there's there was a wealth huge amount of amazing musicians in los angeles that want something like this they want to play they just don't right. want to go out to a noisy bar and and right that's the know. key thing i'm sorry to interrupt. i'm no, so sorry ahead. to interrupt yeah. but that's the key thing is that they want to play, but they don't want to play with all the encumbrances exactly. that being a professional musician entail. Yeah. Like the regimented be here. Of course, mm-hmm. you have to be there at a specific time, but you know, there's no road manager banging on your door totally. your hotel. You have to get up at 5 a.m. to be to the airport to then get a shower and then go yeah. to London and then blah, 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 blah. And these things are great. We all love these things. Yeah. Being a professional musician, God was a blessing to mm-hmm. be able to do that. But it's nice to have a place where you can just go and do it because you love it. Exactly. And it's also no pressure. It's like if you want to, come down. You know, if you're if you're free, come down. Come down halfway through. Come play one song or or don't, whatever. And leave your car double parked out front running and come in and yeah. play this tune. Because that's the thing that I like and that's the thing that has been a part of bluegrass and the kind of the scene that I come from, that's just how people make music and get together and there's little scenes around the country, different cities. So I realized that that there was all these people that wanted to play that were looking for, you know, like 
Ben loves playing with Tom Petty, but it's the same songs, you know? And so it's, it's like he gets to come and really, really just let loose, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and all these people knew, knew each other, you know? Like we were just coming into this scene, right. young people, and realizing that like Ben and Greg Lee have been playing together for 30 years doing sessions, yeah. you know? And, um, and they're all just lovely people and they're, they're no BS. They really just, they want a place to, to play music and without any, you know, egos and weirdness. And Largo was that place. It is that place. And so pretty quickly became a thing where we had lots of special guests and, and uh, kind of a changing band, um, which evolved into the last, like, you know, eight years has been pretty much the same band. Yeah. So now, as we understand it now, and, uh, and hats off to Don Heffington, mm-hmm. who's been on the show, uh, yeah. Independence Day artist, as I like to call him. Uh, such a cool guy. Mm-hmm. Such a great guy. So now the band kind of kind of settled in to you, your sister Sarah, mm-hmm. uh, Greg Lease, yep. pedal steel, Don Heffington playing uh, drums, mm-hmm. uh, Sebastian Steinberg, yep, who used to be in Soul Coughing on Upright Bass, yep. who was in with on on his show, yeah, and uh, who and am Benmont. I missing? And Benmont, of yeah. course. How could I forget Benmont? Yeah. So yeah, it's it sort of it was kind of that group a little bit towards the end of uh, the first Largo that when it it was a small little club um you know held about 120 people uh ben and greg were playing with us a lot i think don had played with us a couple times um and sebastian but when we moved to the the the, when it it moved to the cornet theater largo did um it sort of uh became a little bit less loose more of a sort of you have to plan at plan ahead which was it was good it was a really good move because everyone that had been playing at the old largo needed a change everyone had grown up and gotten bigger and um you know there's comedians and musicians that still played there but it was really an underplay you know um and we needed new challenges everyone needed yeah. to, to step up their game a little bit so moving to the theater you know you have to put on more of a show it's like seats 280 people right they pay more money and they're just sitting in their seats it's more of a proper thing so it, it was really fun you know we started to dress a little nicer started to think about visual presentation you had to show up in pants yeah yeah show up in pants um uh, and so it it's been great. It's been you know totally different than the old Largo, but but um, but good new challenges. And and the band sort of just solidified into that, and um, and was that way. You know, it still is, it still is that way. Although we're, we haven't, we're sort of in a little break right now because Sarah's then, off touring. And then last year you wound up with an album. Yeah, we um, we uh, a good pal of mine, um, Sheldon Gomberg, um, he's a, a bass player and now mostly a producer and has a studio. I was. Working with him, mixing my um, uh, all I do is lie record, and, and he'd heard about uh, the Family Hour, and um, he he has a MS, so he's he, he can't really get around as well. But he knew that we were playing these shows, and he knows all the people in the in the, in the band, the Family Hour band, and he was like, "You guys should record. Come in and record something. You know, we'll do it for free here." And we never really wanted to record. It was like the Family Hour was like the anti-touring and recording. Yeah, yeah. Like, let your hair down. Hair down Don't make thing. us go legit, man. Yeah, we thought that somehow if we recorded it, it would wreck the vibe, you know. So I was like, no, no, no. And he kept saying, you know, just come in. It'll be great. You know, just pick some songs. And so I put the word out to the guys, and everyone was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And um, we somehow had these two days free. And um, we just showed up. I didn't know what we were going to do. We just kind of showed up and... And... Uh, and I think it was me. I think I had the idea that we'd just do covers, make this totally different from our solo yeah. records. You know? And um, so we just we recorded um, these songs really quickly in, in a couple of days, all just live, you know. And um, and then we mixed it and just kind of just let it sit there. I think we thought maybe we'd sell it at Largo or something. And then um, about six months later, Fiona Apple 
was uh, we were talking and she said she wanted to she wanted to get out on the road and do something but she didn't know what she didn't want to do solo shows and I was like well we, maybe we could do some family hour shows you know pick a few cities and sort of camp out and do a residency um, you know like I said let's do like Chicago New York Nashville San Francisco and she was like that's great totally in you know and then I realized that we had <laughs> this recording and I was like oh well we could put out the record too and um that we accidentally made yeah we just and so i told our manager my manager and he was like great let's let's do this so we made it a, a regular tour and uh, it was really really fun and you wound up doing a bunch of dates on that too a bunch of dates yeah about two months of and the record's good Thanks. the record's good I, I i got a copy last year somewhere or other i my girlfriend worked for the grammys so like every mm-hmm. time every now and again she'll just show up with a bag of records yeah and i didn't even know that you guys had made a record i knew what watkins family hour was i was like yeah. oh hey how wonderful that's really cool yeah and it was kind of my it was like my christmas record for this <laughs> cool. last christmas like i i mean not for like decorating the tree but mm-hmm. like around the house as i was doing stuff i put yeah. it on it's really really enjoyable to hear people at this level making music for fun because you really your your fears may lay allay your fears the it comes across as what it is, mm-hmm. which is kind of offhanded in the best way possible. Yeah. Just a relaxing way of people who like each other and like making music together. Yeah. It's very, very nice. Yeah. Well for me it was the the cool part about the record is I mean we did we just sat down and played these songs that we've covers that we've done at the shows, you know, over the years that we liked. Um like um uh there's a Dylan song. Yeah, there's a Dylan song, Going, Going, Gone. Um, songs that we've done over the years um, that we've enjoyed. And um, <clears throat> to me, the beauty of the record is hearing those guys, you know, like Ben and Greg, what they do within the confines of a really simple song, you know, with with not much arrangement, yeah. what they do. And that that that's the beauty of that record to me. Yeah, I've got this thing about Ben Tench to just talk about him for just a second, mm-hmm. like as a short thing. Like whatever, like he and Mike Campbell, whatever they play, is the right thing. I know it's true. Like it's they, they they've invented that thing and perfected it so much that if they play a tritone over some weird chord, it's the right thing it's to play. Musical over that truth. It's 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 the perfect thing. It's really it's really true. I Ben has been such a a, a key part of my musical life since I met him. You know, he's such a sweet guy and he's like one of my very best friends and um and uh, you know he was one of the people that that um. He's one of those people that he plays. He can pick the perfect four notes to play, you yeah. know, and he can be a minimalist and play, you know, just so beautifully and so sparse, and it's just perfect. But then he can also play his ass off and you know play a bunch of, you know, yeah, lo- anything he can play. Anything. Yeah, I've, I've heard him do like ripping stride ragtime oh, stuff, yeah. and I've heard him, like yeah. you said, play. And there's that famous story working with Rick Rubin when mm-hmm. he was doing that Johnny Cash record where. Playing one note. Play one note, but play less. Play less, yeah. So then, he, then he'd rewind the tape and play it again. He'd play the note. Yeah. And Rick Rubin stopped the tape, rewind it again. No, no, no. Play less. And they yeah. did this several times. And, I, I, you know, Tench has said in interviews a couple times, like, he, he finally got it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't how he was, it well, almost wasn't how he was hitting the key or how he was playing the note. Mm-hmm. It was like an attitude adjustment or it was a soul adjustment mm-hmm. or some kind of otherworldly yeah. thing. And he yeah. got it and those records are all brilliant. So yeah. so kudos to you guys. Kudos for making a great record. Kudos for your record, which oh, is thank great. You. Uh, just came out last week, What to Fear, Sean Watkins. Pick it up at your retail establishment. Even better, pick it up at a show. <laughs> uh, and you've, you'll be able to pick it up at a lot of different places. You've got shows coming up all across the country, pretty much any town in America. I guess maybe if you lived in Ely, Nevada, you're not going to get to see Sean Watkins do yeah. his thing, but pretty much everywhere else. Uh, visit SeanWatkins.com. Find out where he's playing and go see him while he's there. You've got enough, we've got enough time for one more song, Sean. What's this going to be? Um, 
Let's do uh, "Don't Say You Love Me." This is um, this is uh, off my um, "All I Do Is Lie" record, and uh, it's a fun little upbeat number. Okay, good way to go out. All right, one last time, Sean Watkins. The song is "Don't Say You Love Me" from his "All I Do Is Lie" record on Independence Day. Then you should leave this liar alone 
don't say you care Keep your kind words to yourself Since you're so above me I'm way down here Leave your sugar on the shelf I'm way down here Leave your sugar on the shelf That's Sean Watkins one last time in Independence Day. So very lucky to have him. Man, you guys, you guys are just great. I say you guys and you, like your whole world, because as I've sitting here this whole time I'm talking to you, I figured out the thing that you're best at is collaboration. Mm. Because it seems like you, Sarah, the whole family you've built out of what you've done, it's all based on that. It's all based yeah. on working together. It's not like anybody's like the star. Mm-hmm. Anybody's the marquee person. It's 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 a whole group effort. And, yeah. and and kudos for bringing that into the modern age. Thanks. Yeah, I mean it's 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 just kind of what I do and it's come from the the type of music that I grew up playing and the you know the music festivals, the bluegrass festivals I go to. Yeah. It was all Everybody playing with everybody all the time, and 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 bringing in new elements and seeing what it what it would sound like. So okay. it's 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 really fun and exciting. It's the most fun and exciting thing for me. So two postscript questions before you go. One, I meant to ask this before, but what happened with the Rick Rubin thing? Did he? Why did he not end up producing <laughs> the record? Uh, we after we were thirty like, after one and thirty, the song thing. Yeah, it was it was weird. We didn't have the songs, and um, we also didn't strangely have the respect that we do now for Rick Rubin. Wow. We, kind of, we our managers kind of introduced us and and he was into it but we wanted someone else to produce and um a friend and uh and then we we just we had the song we he really changed us like that suggestion go out and write with other people. We started writing together and we started writing with people I um he suggested I write with Dan Wilson who I just met mm-hmm. through Glenn Phillips. So I would go out to I went out to Minneapolis a couple times. From Semi-Sonic, times. who's yeah, written with, a, with writes with Dixie Chicks, writes like tons of people. He's like the co-write dream. Like yeah. He, yeah. Um, and then uh, Chris wrote with uh, uh, Gary Loris from the Jayhawks. Mm-hmm. Another favorite um, And so what, you know, what Rick said to us, which at the time was like kind of harsh, um, was like, he said like three sentences that like changed our changed our yeah. life, you know, which is classic Rick Rubin. And, which is um, funny to think about it because he did produce the record. He just didn't produce the record. He, he had a big hand in in reshaping our the way we write songs. He sent you down and, a different road. Yeah, and then and then um, you know it. He he was busy. I think by the time we had the songs, he had a, a lot more things going on, and it just it was going to take too long. Um, before we got around to it, and we, you know, nothing but love and respect. It was, yeah, he's amazing. Um, but it just it was going to take too long, so we um, ended up going with uh, Eric Valentine. Our managers uh, suggested we um, work with him, and and um, and it ended up being an amazing fit. Yeah. So. Good record, nonetheless. And he still had an imprint on it, just not directly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then final question. This is what I've called this my new favorite question, but I've been asking this of people for like a year or more. But what makes you happy? uh you know i I really do think you know like we just touched on it um collaborating with people um i like bringing musicians into new musical situations that that they um are gonna like um you know having people play with other people that you know introducing it's what we do in the family hour and um uh you know we, we get to curate you know musical 
situations that that end up being really great sometimes. And um, so I think yeah, in life and in music, you know, collaborating is is yeah. really sort of uh, something that makes me very very happy. So Sean, I can't thank you enough, man. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. You've got this brand new record. Uh, it's great. People should check it out. Pick it up. What to Fear is what it's called. Sean Watkins. Visit him at seanwatkins.com. S-E-A-N. Everybody pretty much knows that, I think. But just to clarify, you can't see these kinds of things on the radio. Uh, go see Watkins Family Hour down at Largo. Go see the shows. You've got shows nationwide coming up pretty much here uh, with another family situation, just a different version mm-hmm. of it. Um, and like I said, drop by indepday.com to hear the other things. You've got a web exclusive track. You're going to hear that. There's another song you can check out if you've made it this far into the interview. Go to the website and hear that song as well. So, Sean, thank you, man. I appreciate it so very much. So happy to be here, Joe. Keep doing what you do, man. So thanks to Sean Watkins, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley, Wayne Topinski, and Sally Shackleton. The charming Tony Tone Loke Piscotti manages the Independence Day website. Independence Day's theme music was composed by Great Lakes Myth Society. Be sure to check them out. For Independence Day, I am Joe Armstrong. As always, if you do one thing today, please be good to one another.